0: Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Nehemiah 9, 5, and 6. Stand up, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. Let us remain standing and sing praise to our God, hymn number 18. Please be seated. Let us pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again uh, for the rich privileges of worship. We acknowledge to you, O God, uh, that throughout the day, and especially at the end of the day, we find it difficult to focus our mind on spiritual things. We thank you for the, the instruction and the blessing that we find in setting aside our labors, uh, or in the case of the ministers, uh, going about his labors most diligently. But in either case, O oh Lord, all of us are most engaged with spiritual things, and, uh, and that is how it should be on this day. The Sabbath, as it is called rest, is most intently focused on beginning to enjoy the glories and the joys of heaven, not just in an activity. Uh, that is that is a woeful woefully inadequate view of what rest means. Your life in heaven, O oh God, as Jesus tells us, is full of activity, and so too is Christ as He entered His Sabbath rest. So He ever lives to make intercession for us, and He will come again with glory uh, to subdue all of His enemies under His feet. So, Father, our Sundays are busy and they're wearying, and in some ways they're the most tiring day of all, at least as far so far as the outer man goes. But the inner man uh, finds rich spiritual blessings, at least he is able to. So often we squander the blessings which are before us. But you, you give us a real opportunity today that we can't find in the other days. We're just too busy, we're too distracted to take hold of, uh, of salvation and uh, especially sanctification, to grow in grace. We find the means of grace multiplied to us this day, literally, uh, if, if only times two, although perhaps times many more than that. But Father, we ask you that you would please forgive our neglectfulness and our sloth. We pray that you would forgive our inattentiveness to the hours and even the minutes as they pass by. Uh, we we long to regain the Puritan view of the Sabbath, uh, in, in, inaccurately portrayed as a drudgery and uh, a hateful thing. In reality, it was the, the day of rejoicing uh, in their eyes. Yes, a day when our sinful nature still had a say, but... Uh, a day most of all when the inner man was triumphing and our faith was flourishing. Lord, let it be so to us. We are holding on as we find the church is is slipping away, certainly on the Sabbath. Uh, we ask you, O God, that we would we would hold fast to this great blessing and that we would find rich blessings for ourselves, for our families, uh, for uh for even for the outer man, those whose primary labors lie on the other days. Uh let there be great refreshing on this day. And so, Father, even though somehow it already became February, we are uh, still conscious of the fact that it's a new year and a new opportunity. And uh, so many of us would lament that 2020 was not a good year and, and who's to say what this year might hold. But we, we have this sense always with the passing of time, certainly as Christian people, that things even though they're getting harder, they're getting better all the time because we are conscious of the way that salvation is advancing in our lives and the inner man is being renewed day by day, even as we contrast that to the, the, the outer man's decay. And so, Father, we ask you that we would maintain a hopeful and a forward-looking outlook uh, and that we would we would not give in to despair or discouragement even in the face of trials and that you would cause us to be progressing always uh, and that we would be excited as Israel uh, was here, or at least as Israel was meant to be, I won't say that she was, uh, excited to see what you would do. Lord, let us always stand in anticipation to see what you're going to do next, uh, whether you bless a little or or a lot. There are always blessings to be found today and tomorrow, and greater blessings to be found beyond. And as we look forward to the coming of Christ on the last day, the great event to which uh, we, we, uh, or for which we hope, and eagerly long, we ask you, O oh Lord, that we would not squander the days and the hours, but that we would redeem them as best we can, and that we would make use of, of every gift that you've given us and every relationship that you've given us. Father, we ask you that our lights uh, once more would be shining very brightly in this world, and that we would be useful instruments in the Master's hands. But again, as we are bent and crooked sticks. There's so much sin, uh, we can hardly stand it. And we hardly feel that we could be any use to you at all. We pray nonetheless that your glory might shine forth in human weakness. And that you would cause salvation to go on in our lives. Uh, to the benefit of our own souls, but also to the salvation of others in the world. And so, Father, as we, as we open our worship this evening again, we are excited and anticipating what you might do. And even if it should be another ordinary service, even then there are still great blessings. But we never know, Holy Spirit, when you're going to move. Uh, there are worship services that absolutely stun us. There is so much spiritual power. There are other uh, services where it seems that you are almost absent altogether. But even then, we go about our business uh, week by week, Sunday by Sunday, and we find that we are advancing ourselves and that we are growing in grace, and we continue to look for greater things still – that is to say, oh, God, we would pray for greater blessings in worship. We would pray for revival in this place, a great outpouring of your Holy Spirit. And we pray for many great and remarkable things to happen here in this place in the year and in the days to come. We look for you to move, oh, Lord. We know uh, that we certainly wouldn't put it past you to do something mighty and great in our own day. But, Father, we leave it to you. The spirit blows where it wills. We, we, we adore your sovereignty and your grace And thank you even for a meager portion if it should come from you. And so all of these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, For background, I want to read what was said in Exodus chapter 4, verse 27 through uh, 521. It's interesting to see how Israel... Misrepresents themselves. That's something I will point out in the sermon. And I'll just allude to it. So uh, try to try to pay attention to what they say here about the prospect of going into the wilderness. And then once they're there, they recount this moment. Exodus 4.27, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders, uh, the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses then he did the signs in the light of the people, in the sight of the people. So the, here's the key verse. So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. That's something that we'll see they conveniently forget. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So they said, the God of the Hebrews met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh Pharaoh said, look. The people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, You shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men, that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. And the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourself straw, where you can find it. Yet none of your work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. Also, the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, why are you dealing thus with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants. And they say to us, make brick. And indeed, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, idle. Therefore, you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore, go now and work for no straw shall be given you. Yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. And then as they came out from Pharaoh, They met Moses and Aaron, who stood there to meet them, and they said, and this is the point they remember, let the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and uh, in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Uh, Though even that point we will notice they exaggerate greatly. But now let us stand in response to God's word and sing the doxology. be seated and turn with me, please, to your bulletins where you will find the Apostles Creed. We might read and recite that together. Read along with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord I believe in the Holy Ghost, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. And Let us now, in in preparation for God's word, stand together and sing hymn number 506. Please be seated and turn with me, please. Exodus chapter 14. As with the morning text, I had thought I would take more. I, I thought chapter 14 might, uh, might stand as one, and really it should. But I also found that verses 1 through 20 uh, were enough for one sermon. So Exodus chapter 14, we'll break it in two, the famous passage of the crossing of the Red Sea. Here we find Israel uh, coming up to the sea, but next time we'll see them crossing the Red Sea. Hear the word of God. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel that they uh, turn and camp before Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal-Zephon, Or Zephron, you shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now, it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this? that we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. And he also uh, took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel and the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them all, uh, the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea, beside Pi-Hahiroth, before Baal-Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. And So they were afraid, very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up? Out of Egypt, is this not the word that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his armies, army uh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gained honor for myself over, over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. The angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud of darkness to the one and it gave light by night to the other so that the one did not come near the other all that night. And let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we, we enjoy the book of Exodus, let us say. Uh, it is to us, as it was to Israel, the gospel of the Old Testament. At least I think I can put it that way. And Father, we are, we are grateful to read the great act of redemption there, an act that Israel was called to rejoice and to celebrate and to, to live in light of all of her existence until the coming of Christ. We rejoice to see what you did for Israel. We, we have sorrow to see how Israel fell into unbelief, but Nevertheless, we see your great acts of salvation and we praise you for them. And we remember them even on the Sabbath as you command command us in the fourth commandment to remember what you did for Israel. Father, let the word go forth this evening with with power, though delivered through much weakness and even trembling. We ask you, O God, that you would open the hearts and the ears of the people to receive all that you have to say to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here is, uh, the famous chapter of the, the crossing of the Red Sea, which we will, as I say, divide into. We find Israel here under Moses' direction, and he under the Lord's embark into the wilderness up to the Red Sea, and then encamp uh, there by the sea. Next time we will consider how it was crossed, but for now the journey up to the point of crossing is remarkable enough for one sermon. And I was struck by that again just now as I read those verses. Uh, many remarkable things are said there. It begins with the Lord speaking to Moses, instructing the people to go uh, once again, as we saw previously, a way they had not intended, a way which uh, was contrary to the human sense and the human wisdom. And uh, there is nothing surprising here since we have already seen him do this, as I say, in the prior chapter. The Lord leading Israel uh, down a strange path. His purpose is stated in verses 3 and 4. He was, in essence, setting a trap, drawing his enemy out in order to overthrow him. Uh, in the eyes of Pharaoh, he would find Israel in a state of confusion. He would find her trapped, closed in, and, uh, and he was, in essence, exalting Pharaoh so that he might glory in his downfall. But this also, we find, becomes a test for them, a test of faith. I mean, for Israel. And there's no surprise here either, since we've seen the wilderness as the place of testing in the last sermon. And indeed, uh, throughout the book of uh, of Hebrews, the church, like Israel, is in the wilderness. We stand outside the land of promise. We, like Israel, are being tested by the Lord. We might also note, and I'll say this later, we're being pursued by our enemies, who is Satan, who is constantly seeking to overthrow our faith and even ourselves. Sadly, we notice, and it won't be the first time, that Israel does not pass the test. We see here the first of many sad instances of unbelief leading to her eventual apostasy in the wilderness. And again, we think of the warnings that we find in the book of Hebrews. In response to her unbelief, uh, we have uh, one of many instances of uh, Moses' piety and faith. We are struck uh, by the man, Moses, the preacher, the prophet in verse 13 he said to the people, do not be afraid, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord and so forth. We'll see his response to them. But they cry out in unbelief and he rises up in faith. And I would just note here in passing before we come to him, what a remarkable preacher and man of God, Moses was truly. He deserves the acclaim he receives in scripture. And finally, the passage closes with the action of the angel of the Lord from the pillar moving to the rear in order uh, to protect and to distinguish. Now, in this passage, I think there are really three main features and they are seen in the three main actors, the people, Moses and the Lord. There are several interesting points to consider and notice about each, especially as we notice the disposition of each to the impending crisis with Pharaoh's chariots on the heels of the people. The people, Moses, and the Lord. We aren't noticing Pharaoh, you notice, but we are seeing how those three actors are responding to what it seems is about to happen. And again, let me just say, it seems that Israel is about to be slain in the wilderness we begin with the people themselves their history in the wilderness only just begun here becomes a notable instance of unbelief sadly and so it is worth our careful study as Matthew Henry says there is something spiritual and typical in their journey into the wilderness and that is something which we know is true of course because the New Testament tells us it is so and that's a point which I've been making over and over again Israel in the wilderness is a picture of the visible church today being tested and tried and hoping to enter into the land of promise. And so Hebrews makes this exact point that the church is in the exact same position as Israel was here yet to enter the land of promise, which was typical of heaven itself. And first Corinthians chapter 10 as well points to their failings, the failings of the wilderness community In order that we would not commit the same sins and fall into the same state of unbelief and apostasy. This is something we've seen many times, but I have to keep on reminding you of it so that we understand the relevance of this long history to ourselves. The history of Israel in the wilderness. She stands to us as a continual warning sign. Do not go the way that she went. Certain points uh, as we consider Israel in the wilderness uh, from this point all the way to the end of Deuteronomy. So this is a long period of history. There are certain points, let me say, that have no carryover whatsoever. And it will be to our benefit to understand uh, what those are and and then what points do carry over. So uh, let me give you an example. The fact that Israel is organized at the Lord's direction at Sinai, which is in the wilderness, into a Theocracy. Where the church and the state functioned as one. That's something that we will notice time and again. There is little or no point of contact between that and the modern situation. And much confusion arises when people suggest uh, that there is. This is something that was u- unique to Israel's existence as the people of God. But her position in the wilderness. Again, if you follow closely the argument of the New Testament... And a response to those many tests make us think explicitly of ourselves and of the situation of the church. And if they do not, we are missing a very great point and an opportunity for reflection. What we see here is that the people are led down a strange path once more by the Lord under Moses' direction. And they are in essence led into a state of confusion. He brings them to a point of no escape or so it seemed. They were closed in by water, mountains, and an army too great for them to overcome. Basically, the situation was this. Now, I just said this, but let me say it again. God brought them into the wilderness to test them. And Satan personified in the man Pharaoh uh, and his armies chased them there to overcome their faith. Doesn't that make you think of us? God is testing us. Satan is as well. And so in some sense, given their dilemma, the extremity of their dilemma, we can understand their alarm, at least on a purely human level. Verses 10 and 11. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried, uh, uh, cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up? Out of Egypt, the people were alarmed. They were angry. So great was their alarm that they even rep- misrepresent their own position. I alluded to this earlier in the scripture reading, in verse two, uh, or um, in verse twelve. Excuse me. Something which contradicts what they said earlier in chapters four and five. Let me read verse twelve. Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, "Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians"? As I say there, they're misrepresenting their own position, something we often do uh, in uh, moments of unbelief. We are uncharitable even to ourselves or at least our former selves. It is true they said something like this at the end of chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 21. Uh, but it is also true, as we saw, that there was great rejoicing at the first news of their deliverance at the end of chapter 4. And isn't it interesting how ready they are to forget uh, their faith and how ready they are To remember and even to exaggerate their unbelief. Note here the way of unbelief. Notice here how they are called the children of Israel. And so they were. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel. You know, that's something that you see time and again in the Old Testament, but uh, it's easy to overlook it. But the more you study the history, the more you understand why they were called children. They were children as to faith, babes in understanding. And they were also children who were tenderly cared for by the Lord, though they didn't deserve it. The God, God, God constantly treated and regarded them as children to be cared for. Yet we must also notice uh, something which is perhaps surprising given all that I have said in verse 8. Uh, an instance of strong faith which greatly annoyed Pharaoh The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with boldness. I don't think we're characterized to thinking of them like that, and yet we do see instances uh, where they are shining forth in faith. And so once again, the picture isn't as bleak as we might think. But as we saw in chapters 4 and 5, so again we see that their faith, though it was bold, was fleeting. It was bold only for a time. And it was easily overcome at the first instance of trouble or difficulty. Again, just as we find in chapter five, they're rejoicing their worship, their faith vanishes as soon as the Lord brings a single trial into their life, which leads me to say, and I don't think there's any controversy here that it was not real faith, even though it was for a time bold faith. It wasn't real, at least not in the main, something that we have been seeing throughout again. Let me remind you is that we are dealing here with the visible church and that God had regard for his visible church. But in reality, this visible church was full of false professors. It was full of unbelievers. But even then, we must recognize that there was, as always, a remnant in this visible church. It's a very small remnant. In fact, it may have been as small as just one person at this moment. The man Moses himself. But nevertheless, the Lord had a remnant. So there was some true faith in Israel. But in the main, there was none. In the main, what we notice is how ready they were to abandon the right way. They start, but they abandon it. And so they're in a different category than the world. This isn't simply unbelief. This is why apostasy is illustrated through Israel. She begins down the road of faith, but then she abandons it. That's not unbelief. Unbelief never believes. The apostate is one who begins down the road and he turns back. That's what we find in Israel. And as she does this, Again, as you think of uh, the characteristics of apostasy, and and I have to wonder in a sense the providence of the Lord that we are reading these things in tandem, uh, uh, Hebrews and Exodus. I never intended for them to go together and yet here they do. Notice what it is that marks out her unbelieving apostasy. She She is ready in her unbelief to imagine the worst things about God. Though he had proved himself to them again and again. And equally to believe, ready to believe the worst things about his servant Moses. The Lord had proved himself good to them. And yet at the first instance of hardship, they are ready to curse the name of the Lord and his servant. They say the most absurd thing. That it would have been better to be in the bondage of Pharaoh. Than to live as free men under the protection of God. Now just think of that. Which of the two would you rather have? But such is the heart of unbelief. Now again, I'm stating unbelief as that which uh, is, is characteristic of the apostate. That heart prefers the bondage of sin to the glorious liberty of the sons of God. It suggests, as Israel here, that the goodness of God is actually meant to harm us. And that Satan's malice is meant to benefit us. That takes us back to the garden, doesn't it? If you think of the lie which Satan told there. To them, the hard way seems easy and the easy way seems hard. And so once more, they become a picture not only of unbelief and ingratitude. And I would even say blasphemy, but of apostasy, since they had tasted so much of the goodness of the Lord. Yet faith in his goodness took no lasting root in their hearts and it vanished just at the first instance of hardship every time. And so let me notice this about the apostate. I seem to be learning a lot about him. I hope you are as well. Again, I don't know why in the Lord's providence, but here we are. Let me notice this about the apostate, as with Hebrews, that the apostate, remember, he's in the visible church. He is professing faith. How does he appear to be the the apostate? Well, he rarely shows his true colors when the Lord is busy blessing the church. It's something that we see about Israel in times of ease, in times of plenty, in times when the Lord's blessing is evident. He, along with all the rest, is ready to praise God and to believe in God. There is in such times no distinction, no discernible distinction between he and the true professor. His faith appears no different from the rest. But once the Lord begins to try the faith of his church, as he always does. He brings her into the wilderness, he tests her, he allows Satan's malice to rage. The apostate is just as ready to curse God and bless Satan as it were as he was to bless God and renounce Satan in days of blessing. And so uh, we have an indication here of why it is that the, Lo- the Lord brings sore trials to his church. And even, as I say, allows the mouths of Satan to rage against her, leading her into the wilderness, the place of temptation. It is among other things we might think of many benefits, but one of the clearest benefits of such time is that he makes it apparent to the church who the false professors are, since the false professors can never stand in the day of trial. Their profession will always appear to be false. They can never rejoice in the Lord in days of hardship. His judgments and his trials have a way of revealing this for all to see. And we thank God for that. And I would remind you all, as we are in something of uh, days of trial ourselves, though I won't say anything like this we find in in Egypt. But these are certainly days which have been hard for the church and which we find the church... Uh, suffering and struggling, I would remind you in difficult days something which the Puritans would say and which Israel ought to have embodied and that is that it is always better to suffer than to sin. Suppose that uh, Pharaoh in the Lord's providence here had in fact not only overtaken them but killed them in the wilderness. Well, it still would have been better to suffer that fate than to sin and renounce the Lord there. But that isn't what we see here. Even in the worst hour, it is no time to curse God. To die in the wilderness in faith is better than to live in bondage to Satan. But of course it takes faith to see this as we've been considering in Hebrews chapter 11 and faith is precisely what they lacked and what God's trials revealed that they lacked. Well, so much for the people. We will have ample opportunity to consider them again and again and it really is tragic to see, but it stands as a standing warning to the church. Do not go the way she went. But this leads me to notice in the second place, in striking contrast, Moses himself. Where the people stand out for their unbelief and their ingratitude, he stands out in exactly the opposite way. He stands out for his piety and his strong faith. And we might notice many things about him in his disposition to this great trial. He, along with Israel, was aware of what was happening. He could see Pharaoh's armies on the brink of overtaking them. But we don't see him ready to curse God. We find the obedient servant and prophet. So first we see his faith. We see it first in how he hears the word of God. The Lord spoke to Moses. Speak to the children. And so forth. Verses 1 through 4. And he leads the people according to that word. Moses the faithful servant of the house of God. Hebrews chapter 3. And such is the task we might notice of every faithful minister. And again and again, I, I would just note, and I've done this through all of Exodus, Moses is uh, is a type of the minister. He is a minister. This is the task of every minister. He hears the word of God. He doesn't question it. He accepts and hears the word of God in faith. And when God says, speak to the children, so he speaks. I want you to lead them in this way. And so he leads them. Verses 1 through 4. His faith is also seen in his words directed to the people in verses 13 and 14 in response to their complaints. Notice that this was an obstinate and unbelieving people. And yet we notice what a kind and faithful and compassionate man Moses was. He was indeed the meekest man in the world. As we'll later read. Moses said to the people. He might have been greatly annoyed. But he says to the people, do not be afraid, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. He encourages the church in its calamity. He rises up in the midst of their unbelief as the man of faith and he directs their hearts to rest in God. If they will forsake God, he will not. And in this, as I say, he is seen to be the wise and the faithful minister. Not only with regard to his faith in God, but in his disposition toward the people. Matthew Henry, instead of chiding them, he comforts them. So also, Kylan dillich Moses met their unbelief and fear with the energy of a strong faith and promised them help from the Lord. Second, we see it in his prayer. Moses cried to the Lord, verse 15, though it's a fascinating uh, way of pointing to his prayer. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Well, we know that he cried, even if the Lord gave him a, a sort of a rebuke there. We also know that the people cried out to the Lord, verse 10. And so they both prayed, but his prayer, unlike theirs, was offered in faith. He cried out, unlike them, not to chide the Lord, but to beseech him. And God, in directing him to act, does not reject his prayer. But he does tell him, as he often does, that it was time for something more than prayer. In other words, prayer was not enough to meet the need of the hour. There are times, beloved, when prayer is needed, but it is not enough. I almost can't believe I'm saying that, but I am saying that. But I wonder whether we, like Moses, could ever come to know this, but by prayer. How will we ever know what to do unless we live close to God? How will we ever have the faith and the courage to meet the need of the hour unless we're praying? And so prayer, yes, is indispensable. Even in the time, even if in the time of prayer, God directs us to take other actions as well. Do not rest in your prayers, God is saying, as though that is the only thing to do. But do not forsake them either in the time of necessity. Third, we notice his preaching. And note carefully what he says, verse 13. Do not be afraid. I want to divide this up into several points. Do not be afraid. First, Matthew Henry, it is our duty and interest when we cannot get out of our troubles yet to get above our fears so that they may only serve to quicken our prayers and endeavors and may not prevail to silence our faith and hope. That's the message of the faithful minister. If you can't get over your troubles or out of your troubles, get over your fears. Get above your fears. Let that which makes you afraid quicken your prayer. Not silence your faith. You see, that is the message of the meek and the kindly minister, Moses. He doesn't chide, but he bids and he encourages. And I can tell you that I find in Moses here a, a model of ministry in seasons of trial. Moses reminds us of our duty not to be afraid but trust in God. How often we see that in scripture. How often we need to hear it since fear uh, is as natural to man as anything else, especially in times of trial. To get above our fears and to begin to exercise our faith in prayer. But also connected to that, you see, he says, this is the second thing we see, stand still. Do not be afraid, stand still. Now wait till you see what he says next. We'll, uh, well, we'll stand on this moment, uh, this, this uh, point for a moment. Stand still. That too is part of his message. In other words, gather and collect your thoughts. Compose yourselves, lest uh, your fear drives you to excess. Wait and see what the Lord will do. He says, let the anxiety of the situation increase your sense of anticipation for the Lord's great and mighty acts. He will fight for you, Moses says. And that is always the message we need to hear, especially when things get hard and when Satan's actions and agitations against the church are the greatest. Have you forgotten about him? Have you forgotten about the Lord? And have you ceased to wait and see what he will do? Do not allow trials to throw you off your faith and hope in God. But finally, the third thing he preaches to them I've summarized verses 13 and 14, but look at what he says in verse 15. The message to the church in seasons of trial. The direction of the Lord when he says, I I want you to stop praying and I want you to tell them this. Go forward. What? Into the sea? Moses thought or they thought with him? How absurd this seemed to the human mind. But it was the way the Lord would lead. I want you to go forward. Do not be afraid. Stand still. Go forward. Go forward. Those are the three directions of Moses in his preaching. I must quote Henry again when he says, when we are in the way of our duty, though we are met with difficulties, we must go forward. And beloved, that is my own message to you all just now. That however difficult things may seem at present and however, however bad it appears they may become. Go forward. Yes, sit and ponder for a while. Gather your strength and your courage. Let your faith increase by a quiet contemplation of what the Lord will do, verse 14, but then go forward. Remember what was said at the end of chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews. I've been quoting this verse over and over again. He says that we are not of those who shrink back or go back in unbelief, but those who are of faith to the saving of the soul. If we think of the contrast of the visible church between the faithful believer, the pilgrim who reaches his end versus the apostate, apostate, what is the difference? The apostate turns back. But the pilgrim, the faithful pilgrim goes forward, always progressing on the hard road, the way which is narrow but leads to life. So it always is with the pilgrim people. This is what we will find throughout the Old Testament. Certainly we will find it in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. The apostate, I repeat, is the one who goes back. But the one who gets to heaven, though he stops and wavers here and there. I won't pretend it is otherwise, though at times he gives in to doubt. Still, he goes on. He goes forward and he reaches his destination. The wise hearer will know how to apply this truth. Go forward, beloved. Finally, we notice his action. I've stated this many times we notice about Moses that he was a man of action. We see it in the early chapters of Exodus. We see it here. We see that the Lord expects it of him as the leader of God's people. I don't want you to live a quiet life of contemplation. I want you to act as well. And we cannot hope to share in his godliness if we retire to private prayer and think that is all there is to do. That is the mistake of the monasteries. They think of godliness in terms of quiet devotion only. Well, don't misunderstand me and don't misunderstand the Lord here either. In verse 15, there's obviously great benefit to quiet devotion, but there's more to the Christian life, beloved, especially in seasons of hardship than sitting in your chair with your Bible and prayer. The Lord is calling you just as he's calling me to act in certain decisive ways. There is need always, but especially now, as with Israel, need for bold and decisive action. And what energized his actions was his faith, obviously. As he waited and listened uh, for the Lord's direction, he lived upon the word of the Lord. And so he acted. He took the bold, decisive path of action because he believed in God. He met and overcame his enemies in faith because God was with him. Beloved, let us see that godliness consists in more than prayer, that God expects us to act and to face our greatest foes. And especially, let me just put the onus on myself, that God's ministers like Moses must do so. They must be men of faith, they must be men of courage, and they must be men of action. But the final actor in all this is God. In fact, if you read the passage carefully, he is unquestionably the main actor in this passage. He being the subject of many of the verses and maybe even the majority, I didn't take the time to count his name, the Lord. I did count this occurring eight of the 20 verses. He is seen in the pillar speaking to Moses at the outset. And so his speech becomes, as we know, the opportunity for faith. The truth is, as Hebrews helps us to see that God is always speaking to the church. And so he is always leading her. And the most tangible indication of his presence, in fact, is his his speech. The Lord is with the church speaking to her. The only real question left to us as with Moses and the people is, will we believe what God is telling us? And will we act? He is also seen in the form of the angel of God in verse 19. What we notice by this is his presence and protection. He is with the people, guiding and directing them, but also protecting them as the angel of God moves to the rear, just as the armies pursue them from the rear. In this, he also makes a distinction between them, as we've seen before. He makes it appear that he distinguishes between the church and the Lord. Again, let us notice that it is the Lord who makes this distinction to appear and not ourselves. And while he sets his face toward the church, he sets his uh, face against the world in darkness. Sorry, I, I, I misstated what, what I intended to say there. He sets his, his face uh, toward the church in light, so he sets his face against his enemies in darkness. The Lord causes his people to dwell in the light as he sets his face toward them. And he calls his people, if we understand the message of the Bible and especially of the New Testament, to dwell in the light of his presence. And along with him to set our face against the world. Not to participate in the darkness of the world. How foolish then are those who prefer the world's company to the company of the saints. Who spend their Sabbaths on the world's entertainment. Rather on God's, rather than on God's worship. See in this uh, yet again. A picture of what the church is in her fellowship and her life. The Lord blessing her. The Lord causing her to dwell in light. A light which cannot be found elsewhere. In fact, uh, as we see, uh, the place of, uh, of the world is a place of enmity. Not simply the world's enmity to God, but God's enmity to the world. We might also notice his methods with respect to the church. Something which I have highlighted, but let me highlight here again in the sermon. That before he judges the world, he tests the church. Notice the order. Before he judges the world, he tests the church. He brings the church into difficulties first in order to try her and later to appear as her deliverer. God's people find in this nothing strange. This is part of the walk of faith, the pilgrim walk of faith. That when the Lord is trying us, we are aware of his presence and we rejoice in his presence. We even rejoice in his trials. We find nothing strange when the Lord comes with his trials. For with time, we know and learn his ways. And if anything, we begin to expect it. When the Lord brings us into trials, beloved, it is only because he intends to lead us out in his own time that he might appear as our deliverer. And so they wait with delight to see what he will do. That is the way of the pilgrim people. Whenever we find ourselves in difficulties, beloved, let us know it is from the Lord. Let us know his methods that he is trying and testing the church. You know, uh, Paul says that we are not ignorant of the ways of Satan. Well, what a shame it would be if we were ignorant of the ways of the Lord. Let us know what kind of God he is, that he delights to do this sort of thing. And let us not be afraid and stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, as Moses says in verses 13 and 14. But the thing that really stands out here about the Lord once more is how he hardens. If I were to pinpoint one emphatic point of the text, that is what it would be. That the Lord hardens Pharaoh. And it will appear uh, how much he triumphs over this man in the, in the succeeding passage. And so this once again becomes a major emphasis of the text as it has been throughout Exodus. The way the Lord was dealing with Pharaoh. We might have thought the last hardening we read of was the last. But here we discover it was not. The Lord had a further hardening for this man and even for the nation. In fact, the way the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart here was intended to draw him out to battle so that he would overcome Or so that he would be overcome by the Lord in the Red Sea. Which is what the Lord states in verses 4, 8, uh, 17 and 18. I don't need to read those again. I've read them already. The Lord says, I'm hardening his heart so that I will gain honor over him. And I will appear as Israel's deliverer. The express purpose of this, as we see in those verses... Well, and as I just said, that Pharaoh, that God would gain honor over Pharaoh, not as though the Lord needed it, but simply that he delighted to do so. It delighted the Lord to crush this man. The Lord is one who delights in the overthrow of the wicked, beloved. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you realize equally that this is something which the Lord delights that we should see? And that we should rejoice in his victories. In fact, so much of the Old Testament is the Lord simply calling his people to rejoice in his victories, which are time and again his overthrow, of the, uh, his overthrow of our enemies and his. Well, let me say this to you. Something I've said before, but it bears repeating. That God knows how to deal with the wicked king. He knows how to deal with the pharaohs of this world. He is able to overthrow them whenever he likes. And if he waits, it is only because it most suits his glory to do so. Knowing that he will be most glorified in their downfall at another time. When you see Israel here standing at the brink of her own ruin. Realize that Pharaoh was at his strongest. That he has yet to be overthrown. We find the church here anticipating what the Lord will do. But having yet to experience it. So we see opposite principles at work. And we will notice this again and again throughout Exodus. That he brings the church low in order that he might lift her high. But the opposite principle in the enemies of the church, he raises up wicked rulers in order that he might glory in their downfall and we along with him. And so just as soon as we realize who the Lord is and that he is the one who is acting here, we, we must recognize that he has ever delights in all his own actions. He delights in the salvation of the church. He delights in the overthrow. And the downfall of the wicked man. And we are meant to as well. We are meant to delight. In all that the Lord does. And let me just say this. We must take a peculiar pleasure. In knowing that God will judge the wicked. This is something which must must fill. uh, The heart of the believer. With pleasure and delight and rejoicing. We must realize that on the last day. The saints will stand together with Christ. And rejoice to see the wicked perish. Just as much as they will rejoice in their own salvation. Now that is the thing we need to see. In Exodus, in the downfall of Pharaoh, that God's glory shines forth as much in the overthrow of his enemies as it does in the salvation of the church. Both aspects stand out equally. And if anything, in chapter 14, it is Pharaoh's downfall that is the greater of the two. And so my point is this. That as we find ourselves like Israel, uh, we might say, with our backs to the wall, though I won't state it quite that strongly. But as we find ourselves along with Israel, waiting to see what the Lord will do, uh, waiting to see how he will deal with the wicked kings of this world. We must anticipate as much the Lord's coming in judgment as is coming to us with salvation. Uh, if you think of what has been said uh, in the book of Hebrews, it's, it's spoken of the Lord's coming, the coming of the Lord Jesus on the last day, and it's emphasized both aspects. Chapter nine, verse twenty eight. He will come with salvation, but equally, chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, quoting Psalm 110, he will rule in heaven until he has made his enemies a footstool. In other words, when Christ returns, he will bring salvation to his church. But at the same time and equally. He will overthrow his enemies with a perfect victory. And both of these, are, these are, are, are the object or the substance of the faith and the hope of God's people. In both of these, Christ, our Lord, will be glorified in the midst of his creation. And both of these aspects, as we wait, must fill us with anticipation as we look for his coming. But it is the aspect of judgment... Again, which I say is the is the emphasis here when he comes to subdue his enemies. It is that which must especially encourage and hearten us in times of hardship, times in which the wickedness of the rulers of this age, as in this country, becomes especially apparent and is a source of lament and discouragement to the people of God. And I tell you, I am discouraged when I think about this country, when I think about the rulers Well, what is my message to myself? What is my message to you? Well, my message to you is Christ is coming. He is coming with salvation, the fullness of salvation to his church, but he is also coming to subdue the wicked rulers of this world. And just you wait to see what he will do on that day. It will be far greater than what he did to Pharaoh. It will be a day of great rejoicing for us all. Let us recognize that Christ in his priesthood includes this work as well. And so the next time, and I'm preaching to myself here as well, the next time one of you complains to me about this or that ruler, I may just remind you to wait and see what the Lord will do. To delight at what God will one day do. And I will tell you not to worry, but to wait and let God have his own say in his own timing as he did with Pharaoh. Let every believer know, however, wicked are the days in which he lives and the rulers under which he must submit that God rules the nations and that he raises up wicked rulers only so that he may glory in their downfall and recognize equally that we will glory along with him. But beyond even that, we are meant even now to begin to glory just at the prospect of it. As we stand still, Moses says, And see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you. And you shall hold your peace. That is the message for the church in every age until Christ should come. Amen. And may we believe it. Let us stand together and praise to God singing hymn number 23.